Matthew chapter number one. Matthew chapter one. The story from the Gospel of Matthew chapter one. We're reading there, and we're going to begin the reading in verse 18. And usually I read, but today let's all read together. What do you say? Matthew 1, 18. Stand to your feet, please, as we, as we read, and we'll start in verse number 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. And while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. The very familiar but wonderful, wonderful passage that describes the coming of the Lord into the world. You may be seated. <clears throat> the coming of Jesus Christ changed the world like no other event ever in all of history. Where his teaching today is accepted and where Jesus Christ is worshiped as God, great social, political, and cultural progress has been achieved. And on the other hand, where his truth is rejected, the culture slips back into its pre-Christian pagan darkness. I would like today to speak to you on the subject, saving his people from their sins. And I would like to try to trace for you the impact that Jesus Christ has made upon this world, not only in the spiritual realm, but in a number of different areas. And so I begin with the impact of Christ upon the world in general. Somebody said that Jesus Christ struck the world such a blow that even time was split in half. Isn't that a great statement? Jesus Christ struck the world with such a blow that even time itself is split in half. And so we measure every event that ever has happened in history. If it was before the birth of Jesus Christ, we refer to it as B.C., and we date it. Jesus Christ has had more study by more people devoted to his life than any other single individual. 
He is the subject of more books. More books have been written about him than any other single person in all of recorded history. Now, his coming brought such momentous change that you and I living in a very Bible-oriented culture, particularly if you've come to our church here, we forget the impact of the Lord Jesus Christ upon history. We forget what that pre-Christian pagan world was, how dark it was, how cruel it was, how tyrannical it was. We forget all of that, and we think that things have always been like they are now. And I tell you decidedly, not so. Before Jesus Christ, for example, freedom and human rights were largely unknown. We think today, and we hear a lot about slavery even in our country today, and we think that we were the only people that practiced slavery. Let me tell you something that's a fact of history. Slavery has been the norm in most cultures and in most nations for most of history. It is almost unique that today slavery has been pushed to the side as much as it has, though it still exists in some countries today in North Africa and in the Middle East. But slavery and human sacrifice were practiced in almost every culture until the time of Christ. To the Aztec Empire down in Mexico and the Incas in Peru, slavery, along with ritual rape and mass human sacrifice, were a part of the culture. It was accepted. In India, suti, which is the burning of a widow on the funeral pyre of her husband, was common practice until William Carey, the Christian missionary, arrived there and began to preach the gospel and preach against the cruelties of those Hindu practices. In England, slavery was eradicated as a result of the tireless efforts of Many of the people who are Christian leaders prominently, there was William Wilberforce and there was David Livingstone. And so my point is that Jesus Christ brought freedom and human rights that were largely unknown before his time. Fifty years after slavery was abolished in England, then slavery was also abolished in the United States of America, and the primary reason was our Christian belief. Not only did Jesus bring freedom and human rights into the world, Jesus Christ is the prominent leader in the field of education. The Lord Jesus Christ is regarded by many of us as the greatest teacher the world has ever known. And before him, education was available only to men and to boys, and only men and boys are the privileged and upper classes. Ignorance and darkness prevailed across the entire world. And then Jesus came, and he gave us his great commission. In the great commission, he said, go into all the world, and what did he say to do? To teach. And Christian missionaries went across the face of this old globe, and among the first things they would do in every culture is they would establish schools. And those schools taught the gospel, but it, they also taught other subjects, other academic fields. And over a period of time, of course, we've seen 
ignorance and illiteracy pushed back even worldwide. And you can thank the Christians for that. They were the ones who initiated that idea. Many of the languages of the world were spoken languages. There was no written uh, record of the languages. There was no written language at all. And then the Christian missionaries came, and in many, many countries, it was the missionaries who reduced the language to writing and brought literacy, the gift of literacy, to the tribes of Africa and to Asia and to the islands of the sea, to Latin America and to other places across the planet. The Reformation, the Reformation itself was a tribute to education. The first university that was ever founded in the, in the history of Western civilization was Oxford University in uh, London, England. And uh, the word university was not even known until then. The word university, if you'll look at it and analyze it, it begins with universe or uni or unity or one. And the second part of it is based on the word from the Latin that deals with truth and veritas. And so you put those two words, uni veritas, university, one truth, one truth. And that truth was the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, His gospel, the truth of the Bible, the truth of the Christian faith. And I not only think of education, I not only think of human rights and freedom, but also think about science and medicine and the role that the coming of Christ played in establishing science and medicine as we know them in the modern world of today. Jesus Christ and the Christian faith, I think, were the primary impetuses to modern science and to medicine. The founding fathers of science and medicine almost exclusively believed in God. They believed in the Bible. They believed in the Christian faith. They believed in creation too, by the way. We live in a time when if you walk into a college classroom and sign up for a science course, it's almost assumed that it's based upon a humanistic, materialistic worldview, that you will accept evolution as being fact, and you are taught that to be a good scientist, you cannot be a person of faith that agnosticism and atheism are a vital part of what is required to be a man or woman of science. It was not always so. In fact, the scientific revolution began with the Protestant Reformation, and the Bible played a very vital role in the development of scientific inquiry and discovery. Dr. Henry Morris is a well-known scholar and scientist he was the head of the Department of Geology at Virginia Technical Institute, now VPI. He was there for many years, but he's also a very outstanding Christian. He is the editor of the Defender Study Bible, a very wonderful study Bible that you can purchase. And Morris did a study of the lives of the great scientists, the people who were instrumental in founding and establishing many of the great scientific disciplines that we uh, know to be true today. And here's what he found out. Morris discovered that 41 
scientific disciplines were established by scientists who accepted the Scripture literally and were creationists. Among those scientists were Sir, Sir Isaac Newton, who is the founder of what we call calculus. Joseph Lister, he um, invented Listerine. Not really, I just thought I'd say that, you know, but Joseph Lister was the founder of what we call antiseptic surgery. Robert Boyle is the father of modern-day chemistry. George Cuvier was the founder of one of the branches of paleontology and anatomy. Gregory Mendel was the one who organized and formulated our belief, our understanding of genetics. And probably the greatest scientist who ever lived was Louis Pasteur, a Frenchman. Recently, a few years ago, Pasteur was named the man who has saved more lives than anybody in all of human history. He was a devout Christian. He was a creationist. He believed the Bible. And Louis Pasteur, because he, because he was the one who invented vaccinations, he discovered the principles of vaccination, immunology, bacterial contamination. He's the first one who advanced the theory the germ theory of disease, that diseases were caused by germs. He's the one that initiated hand washing during surgery and childbirth and things like that to prevent infection. And Pasteur, it is said because he invented the vaccination, has saved more lives than anybody in all of human history. Because if you think about the people that died from typhoid and malaria and and all these dread diseases, measles, and a score more of diseases. And now we vaccinate those people across the world, and those people, uh, we, we, those diseases are not the threat to their lives that they had been traditionally through history. And so you can thank Louis Pasteur, a devout Christian, for that. Before Christ, it was a world without hospitals. Diseases were rampant. Life was cheap and life expectancy was low before the coming of Christ. We all know of Florence Nightingale. She was the founder of modern-day nursing, but not only nursing, hospital methods themselves, the protocols that hospitals use. We have the American Red Cross, and the very symbol of the Red Cross, and its blood drives and all that goes with that is a cross. Because back when that was begun, people really believed widely across the culture that healing flowed from the Lord Jesus Christ, the great physician, and that healing flowed, in fact, from the cross. And so when you drive to the hospital for treatment, when you get a shot and they rub the alcohol and disinfectant on your arm. When you go there and take anesthesia before you have surgery in a germ-free environment, attended by a caring nurse, thank a Christian. None of that existed before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world. And it exists today because it's an outflow of the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Judeo-Christian teaching was the primary influence in shaping our legal system. The Ten Commandments laid the foundation of our legal system in all of Western civilization, not just in America. The first legal statute that was ever written was by a pastor. It was called the Magna Carta, signed in a meadow in Runnymede near London in England. And for the first time in all of history, the powers of government was restricted. And people said, we want no more power given to the government. And as I said, that document was written by a pastor, and it was saturated with biblical principles. In our law today, the ideas of a natural law, that there are certain natural rights we have by virtue of just being born, natural law, due process, the use of witnesses in a trial, equal protection under the law, separation of powers, all of those came out of the teachings of Jesus Christ and out of the Scripture. Before Christ in the ancient world, there was very little charity. Benevolence to strangers was almost unknown. Why do you think that Jesus was born in a stable? Had he been in America, there is this sense of charity that unless it was among the worst of people, they would have said to him, they would have said to Mary, come here, we've got to do something to help this little girl have this baby in a proper environment, in a germ-free environment, hopefully. We would have taken her to a hospital, or we would at least have gotten her medical help. But in that day, there was no sanctity of life. There was no value of human life above animal life. Here's a girl. She's pregnant. She's with this guy. They're too young to be having a baby anyhow. Let him go over there in the cattle stall and be born. No compassion, no charity, no benevolence to speak of in the world at that time. Jesus Christ came, and in his ministry, he provided compassionate care, loving care for people who couldn't care for themselves, the old, the needy, the poor, the blind, the handicapped. Where do you think our compassion came Go to India today and see if you can find that in a different culture. Go to China, where I have been and seen the beggars on the street, and there's nobody that seems to care. The milk of plain human compassion is rather scarce in some of those other cultures. The compassion society that we have, the giving to charity. Do you realize how much more Americans give to charity? and places where the culture has been Christianized. Do you realize how much more giving is going on here than in other places in the world? You go to a non-Christian culture, and there is no benevolent giving. There is no charitable organizations. Jesus Christ has made the difference. The teachings of Jesus Christ has given us the greatest examples of art. Think of Michelangelo, architecture. Think of the cathedrals of Europe, music, think of Bach, exploration, think of Columbus who wrote in his journal, God raised me up for this purpose, that I would go across these oceans and that I would find new lands and the gospel would be taken to those native peoples. 
That was written in the Journal of Columbus himself. And, it, and after I tell you all of that, let me review those headings. Before Jesus Christ, freedom and human rights were largely unknown. Jesus Christ initiated that modern ideas of education. He gave impetus to modern science and medicine. His teaching was the primary influence in shaping our legal system. His influence has brought charity and benevolence to our culture like none ever in all of history. His teachings have inspired art and architecture and music and exploration. And yet, tragedy of all tragedies. As we come to the end of the year 2018 after his birth, his influence is waning in many places in the world and not recognized, in fact, rejected. Today, we're seeing Christianity being cast aside by the academics and the intellectuals, by the government policymakers, by the media and entertainment industries. The Christian faith, like some dusty old unwanted Adam, uh, item up in our attic, useful to us in the past but of no value anymore, is now placed in the Saturday garage sale of ideas, ready to be discarded for pittance. And people who used to value it, people who used to never think of missing a church service if they could be present, people who read the Word of God, people who prayed, people who taught their children the principles of Scripture and lived their lives by the principles of Scripture, have jettisoned their faith. And the fastest growing demographic of people in the religious surveys in America are the nuns, not nuns as in the Catholic faith with a U, but N-O-N-E-S. The people who said, I used to be a practicing Christian, but I'm not now. That's old fogey. That's old stuff. I'm not interested in that. We found a better way to live our life. We can leave that out. We don't need that anymore. Put it in the garage sale. It's a relic of the past. Well, if I were to stop here, the work and the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ would be enough for us to do everything that we do to celebrate Christmas, wouldn't it? But I'm not stopping there because let me tell you about his greatest work. His greatest work is described here in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. Will you look at the verse again with me? And the Bible here, the angel is actually doing the speaking here. And he's speaking to Joseph, and he says, She, referring to Mary, shall bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. Circle the word Jesus there maybe for this time in your Bible, and write out there in the margin what Jesus means. Jesus means deliverance, deliverance or rescue. She shall call his name the Deliverer. She shall call his name the one who came to rescue humanity in its and its, in its darkness. The greatest accomplishment of Jesus Christ was not these things that I've described so far. 
The greatest accomplishment of Jesus Christ, ladies and gentlemen, was his work of redemption. Let me say this very, very clearly, very, very strongly, because this church and the people who are watching us on television need to hear this because we're bucking the trend when I say this, but it needs to be said. The primary work of the Christian faith and the Lord Jesus Christ is not social justice. It is not humanitarian relief. It is not cultural progress. It is the redemption of mankind. He will save his people from their sins. And for 50 years, I've tried to keep this pulpit hot about that. And I may be getting older, but I'm going to tell you one thing. I'm not cooling down on that one. The purpose of Jesus Christ coming and going to the cross was not to make this world a better place. It was to get people ready for an eternal place. Before Jesus, the whole world was given to idolatry until the exodus Every nation on the earth worshiped idols, including the Jews. Down in Egypt, they were idol worshipers. And God knew that to ever create a people who could bring forth the stream of redemption, he would have to isolate and separate them from the idolatry that plagued them. And so the exodus, he physically removed them from the land of Egypt. And they had this great leader who came upon the scene, Moses, that God brought. And Moses was the lawgiver up on top of Mount Sinai. God gave him the sacred scriptures, the only scriptures that was sacred that existed at that time in history. And he began to teach the people, the Jewish people. They became the one exception to the idolatry of the whole world that lay in pagan darkness. Only the Jews worship the true God. Every historian will credit them with being the ones who brought us monotheism, the worship of one God. In John chapter 1 and verse 17, the Bible says the law was given to us by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Grace and truth came through the Lord Jesus Christ. Boy, that's mind-boggling to me. It is absolutely blows my mind that Almighty God who created this universe and loved mankind so much that he would send his only son to the world to die for my sins and the sins of this world. And now salvation would be accomplished not through sacrificial animals, through rituals and sacraments and feasts and observances, but salvation would come because his son would come and do a work on behalf of every single person on the planet. And when his son would finish the work, God could extend grace to the peoples of the world. And they would not be saved by their own efforts by the keeping of laws and rituals and sacrifices, but they would be saved through the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That blows my mind when I think about that. 
Turn with me, if you will, please, to the book of Titus in your Bible. Titus over after uh, First and Second Timothy. There is a wonderful, wonderful verse that I want you to focus on this Christmas season. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. It says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust or desires, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. I want you especially to notice that word appeared there. That word comes from a Greek word which we know as epiphany. An epiphany. What is an epiphany? The Greeks use the word epiphany or appeared in our Bible here. They would look out in the morning before the sun arose into the darkness and the sun would begin to come up over the horizon and the light would begin to dispel the darkness of the, mor- of the evening. And the Greeks called that an epiphany. The sunrise every morning was an, an epiphany. Light came to an otherwise dark world. And so time, Paul here in writing his letter to to Titus, he picks up on that word, and he says, when Jesus Christ came, the grace of God that brings salvation was an epiphany, a sunrise to all men who live in the darkness of that pagan world that existed at that time. I look at Isaiah chapter 9 in my Bible as well, and I think we have it up there on the screen, so you need not turn. The people who walked in darkness, that's the pagan world before Jesus. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. The great light is Jesus Christ who said, who proclaimed himself to be the light. He was the only one who could have ever died for our sins and accomplished the work of redemption. If you read through the Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah, there were three conditions Messiah had to meet. One, he had to be a human. No angel or any other created being could possibly take the place of a human. The deliverer, the rescuer, the Savior had to be a human. But secondly, he had to be divine. He couldn't be just human. He had to be divine. And the reason for that is that humanity, every single person had sinned countless times. An infinite number of sins had been committed in human history and would be committed throughout the rest of human history. And so it would require a, an infinite payment to pay for an infinite number of sins. Only God could do that. No human being is infinite. No human being could pay for the sins of the rest of the world. And so he had to be human. He had to be divine. And he had to be sinless. He could not be imperfect in his own being himself. In other words, he had to be holy. 
And when Jesus Christ came to the world and he was born in that manger of a virgin, he fulfilled all three of those requirements. Think about this with me. He was born of Mary. He was the seed of the woman that made him human. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit, which made him divine, the Son of God. And he was holy and sinless. He was the perfect Lamb of God, the only person in all of human history who was qualified to go to the cross and pay for the sins of humanity, and he did so. And his birth was just a pure act of grace. We deserved nothing from him, and yet he came and he gave us everything. His birth was the greatest act of humility the world has ever seen, that God would be born in a manger. It was the greatest act of condescension that the world had ever seen, that God would stoop to the level of a man born in a manger and that he would be willing to die for the sins of the world. The creator of man, the creator of the universe in a manger, omnipotence wrapped in swaddling clothes, somebody said so beautifully the one who had all power restrained by the blanket that his mother wrapped him in, condescension and humility like this old world has never seen. I think of the words of that song that we sing so often here. And when I think that God, his son, not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. Boy, how true. Think about that. You can't take that in. When I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take that in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and he died to take away my sin. The greatest accomplishment of the Lord Jesus Christ was not what he did for culture and society and government and art. The greatest accomplishment of Jesus Christ is he paid for the sins of humanity. He accomplished the work of redemption. Go down to verse 13 in Titus. He's not through with this word epiphany. He says, and looking for that blessed hope and the glorious epiphany of our Lord, of our great God. See, here's his two natures, the great God and the Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar, a different people, zealous of good works. I want to tell you today, that verse 13, there's a wonderful verse. It has in it the rapture, the blessed hope. But it doesn't stop there. It has the second coming, the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In the rapture, he doesn't appear. He comes in the air. We're called up to be with the Lord. At the appearing, the second coming, We have the epiphany, the light of Jesus Christ comes back into this world. The world hasn't seen the last 
of the babe who was born in the manger. The Bible says he's coming back in a glorious epiphany, a glorious return. Listen to me carefully. History has a theme. It's not meaningless. Everything is moving. The pieces are coming together like a jigsaw puzzle. History has a theme, and the theme is Jesus Christ. Something else, history has a goal. God has a goal. His goal is to bring about universal righteousness where every single person on the planet who is left here will be a righteous person. The theme of history is Jesus Christ. The goal of history is to create a righteous, universal presence upon the planet that will rule and reign with Jesus Christ. The rapture, he'll catch us up. Seven years later, the second coming, he will come back with us and he will set up his kingdom and his universal righteousness will be achieved in that kingdom. And right now, the Bible has described for us world conditions as they will be when he will come again. And I'll tell you, ladies and gentlemen, we're living those conditions. We're living those conditions. You read your paper in one hand and your Bible in the other, we're living those conditions. Norm and I went down to Charleston Friday, and we went down to visit our son and his family, and we went into a restaurant that evening. <clears throat> I walked in, and right in the foyer, they had this huge Christmas tree. It must have been 15, 20 feet high. Beautifully, beautifully decorated. Just outstanding. I stood there and looked at it for a few moments and enjoyed it. Underneath it were these big boxes, these presents, so beautifully, looked like expensively wrapped. And they were, they were clustered around the tree. And then it dawned on me, those packages that are so beautiful are empty. There's not anything in those boxes. And immediately my sermonic mind kicked in. And I said, that's the world, isn't it, out there? That's the world. They have the beautiful, beautiful, enticing packages. And the world offers them to us. But they're empty. They're empty. And if you leave Jesus Christ out of your life, sooner or later, if you live long enough, it will dawn on you that you've missed what this life is really about because he's the theme of history. He is the goal of history. He's the only thing that really makes life meaningful, purposeful, and worthwhile. Don't leave him out. Don't buy the world's empty package. Jesus Christ is what this whole thing is about. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.